I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Dr. Robert Grayboyce, Senior Research Fellow and Healthcare Scholar at Mercatus Center, George Mason University, one of the premier think tanks whose focus is to bridge the gap between academic ideas and real-world problems. Dr. Grayboys is one of the featured experts in Bottom Line's recent special report on how much single-payer healthcare would really cost. This is a critical and complicated issue in the upcoming election, and we felt it important that voters should understand all the considerations surrounding it before they vote. You can learn more about Dr. Grayboy's work and all the Mercatus does at Mercatus.org. So welcome, Bob. Thank you for talking to us today. Oh, delighted to be with you. Well, and thank you for participating in this special report that we did. We really, we broke the mold. I actually had an argument with our editors because bottom line is all about what should I do about it. And in this case, we can't tell people how to vote, but it's such an important and complicated issue. We wanted to lay out the complicated considerations so that they were more educated when they go in to vote. Terrific. Yeah. Well, let me let me start off with something before that. Um, for any listeners, you know, one of the most important things to know is that whatever Medicare is today, that's not what Medicare for all would be. Medicare for all would end the current Medicare program and replace it with something else. And that is one of the most important and underreported features of the whole idea. Under single payer health care, what is changed? What are they proposing to do in that? Okay, essentially wipe out current Medicare, wipe out current Medicaid, wipe out current uh, employer-sponsored health insurance, uh, wipe out, uh, well, most, most of the health insurance or the individual market, everything that now stands goes away with the exception of two small chunks, uh, which is the, uh, the veterans, uh, the, the VA coverage and the Indian Health Service, which are combined a very small portion of it. But basically, all of the other insurance markets, public and private in the United States, go away permanently and are replaced by something, which the details as they now stand are somewhat sketchy. Uh, no one really knows exactly what Medicare for all would look like, but there would be significant differences. So there would be no more deductibles. There would be no more copay. Uh, it would include vision, dental, hearing, uh, and it would be, you know, exceedingly generous in many ways. Um, so this would be a new, a this would be the idea now. So you did a cost analysis, and several groups. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't. My uh, my colleague Chuck Blahouse did, okay. and I and I wrote about what Chuck wrote. Okay, and it looked like from the financial analysis that the cost, the cost as we reported it in Bottom Line Personal, was that the projection for 2022 to 2026, the current system would cost about 5.1 trillion dollars if we stayed on what we were doing. Medicare for all, if they assumed reduced payments to providers, would be just under $5 trillion. And Without, that, yeah, that was a one-year. Uh, per year. We were looking, 
Correct. Five yes, trillion per year. Correct. And then approximately then four point nine six trillion. Five trillion the first year and rising thereafter. Okay. All right. Um, and then so five trillion, five trillion, and then Medicare for all. If there were no changes in fees to providers, so basically, if they took the private insurance fees and then they added on top of it this additional vision, dental, hearing coverage for everybody, so that suddenly all the uninsured, all pre-existing conditions had insurance, that went up only to $5.4 trillion for the first year. Which yeah, I, I don't have the table in front of me, but now there were, there were cuts to providers. The, uh, the baseline assumption is that, uh, that physicians going forth would be paid at essentially present-day Medicare rates, which uh, if you were a physician being paid by private insurers, you would be taking a 40% cut on that segment of your billing. So no, there were big provider cuts in it. Well, and even, oh, so, because I thought that there was, there were three versions, that there was one with assumed no cuts, and then there was another version that assumed um, cuts, and that there was a, a $0.4 trillion differential between those two. But nonetheless, the, the real aspect of it to me is that even at this $400 billion differential, when you lay on the tens of millions of people that are suddenly going to come onto insurance, and that vision and dental and hearing and out-of-pocket and co-insurance and all drugs, everything flat out gets covered. How can these numbers, that those numbers seem insanely low to me? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that was a point that... Um that my colleague Chuck Blahouse made and made repeatedly over and over in the paper. And frankly, a lot of readers didn't read those disclaimers. He said, he said, I am going by the assumptions made by Senator Bernie Sanders and other sponsors of this bill that if their wildest dreams were realized, these would be the numbers. And then he then he noted that if if just one of them if one of those real things was not realized, if physicians didn't really have to take the cuts, and there's good reason to think they wouldn't, uh, at that point, the thing becomes a much larger money eater. And uh, and then he all the the sponsors of the bill also assumed great savings in administrative um, you know administration, which. I know Chuck does not uh, believe would likely be the case, and I certainly don't believe. He was, he was quite fair. He assumed that there might be some administrative savings, but probably not on the scale that Senator Sanders and others are thinking. And that, uh, and that furthermore, I uh, assumed that there would be significant cuts in drug costs. So they built in a lot of assumptions that wonderful things would happen and all he did in this exercise, he had one purpose and one purpose only in his uh, financial exercise, which was to say, if everything Medicare for all sponsors uh, think will happen, happens, how much will the federal budget increase? Uh, and and I'll, I'll mention that he, he was the most recent public trustee, one of two public trustees for Medicare and Social Security. Uh, appointed by President Obama. There's always one Republican, one Democrat um, uh, who, who serve uh, in those roles. And he and his 
uh, Democratic partner on it, we're, we're quite in agreement. I, I just did a, a podcast with, with them. Um, so these were really ambitious, cost-cutting assumptions. And he said, if they happen, if, the, if everything they believe came true, the federal government would be on the hook for an additional $32.6 trillion over 10 years. And under those assumptions, there would be about a $2 trillion reduction in total spending on health care in the United States. Uh, now, again, then he said, if any part of this goes wrong, those assumptions are out the window. If, if Medicare doesn't actually force, if doctors are not forced to take the cuts, and we have good precedent for that. In the 1990s, Congress passed something called the Sustainable Growth Rate, which was to, uh, to tamp down on the increase in medical costs, that doc, you know, medical spending that doctors would receive. Every single year, Congress passed a, a bill called the Doc Fix that said, mm, let's wait till next year. Let's give them that raise this year. But starting next year, we're going to really clamp down. And this went on for nearly 20 years until Congress finally said, you know, let's just stop playing the game. And they stopped playing that game. So it is a truly heroic assumption to think that doctors are going to take the, uh, the pay cuts that are prescribed. Uh, and... You, know, you also have to ask questions, assuming the doctors, if they actually are forced to take the cuts, will they continue working? Will a doctor who is currently you know, accepting mostly private insurance be willing to take a 40% cut in income and still continue working and still continue working as many hours and providing the quality of service? So again, the numbers that were in the Blahouse study were simply under the most optimistic uh, assumptions that Senator Sanders and his allies made, what would be the change in the federal government and and on the flip side, how much what would be the change in total health care spending? And what's been the government's scorecard historically on efficiency in running programs, on sticking to budgets, on cost containment? Terrible. So the likelihood of being able to meet those numbers, again, it sounds good, but if somebody, if people want to want to vote for it and say that they're really interested in this, it's going to take a lot of continued involvement to ensure cost containment and that it doesn't end up coming around, boomer, boomeranging around into extremely high tax revenues. Because in the end, this is going to be paid for by taxes, is that correct? Yes, under these most, under the, under the wildly optimistic assumptions uh, implicit in the Sanders bill, you would have to double more, excuse me, more than double all income taxes, personal income tax and corporate income tax across the board. Uh, if you just it wouldn't pay for it. And, and let's say that would include, for example, retirees on their IRA, IRA withdrawals, on their um, pensions, on their capital gains, all those things. Imagine all of those taxes doubling and more than doubling. And so to put numbers to it, and that's across the board, we haven't even talked about whether it it really happens across the board and nobody knows or whether it becomes a progressive track 
tax um, increase for the higher income levels. So, Correct. Yeah. Correct. There has never been a tax increase of that magnitude. I think it's probably safe to say in, in the history of the world, there has never been a tax increase of that magnitude. And it is anyone's guess as to what effect it would uh, it would bring down on the economy. It is safe to say that it would have large disruptive effects. So I wrote one, one little piece. Uh, Piggybacking off the uh, the work of um, another fellow by the name of, of Mark Goldwine, and um, and the the upshot of that is, if you were to do that, even under again the wildest, most optimistic assumptions, uh, people noted that if you followed through on that, there would be a two trillion dollar uh, reduction in total U.S. healthcare spending, but under generous assumptions, you would probably be shrinking the rest of the economy by, I think, I think he just sort of, he didn't do a um, an, an exhaustive in-depth analysis, but something probably reducing the U.S. economy eight to ten trillion dollars outside of the healthcare sector. So let me just repeat that again, because it's a lot of numbers and a lot of things yep. for people to consider. So you do single payer for all, um, medical coverage for all, you increase taxes, probably doubling, uh, on average, doubling taxes. Who knows whether they would throw it, you know, to the one percent and the five percent, or whether it comes across the board. So somebody who's paying fifteen percent taxes might suddenly be paying thirty percent. Someone paying twenty-five percent, twenty-two percent. I don't, I don't know what the latest tax rates are off the top of my head. Twenty-five percent suddenly paying fifty percent, and what that would then create is an eight to ten trillion dollar shrinkage in the overall economy. Suddenly, jobs are lost. Corporate um, um, earnings are down because people don't have the money to actually be spending in the economy. Is that correct? That's correct. So to consider, and, and any and the magnitude, it could be larger. I I sort of doubt it would be smaller, but it uh, it's anyone's guess exactly how big it would be because again, it's uncharted territory. There's never been a tax increase of that magnitude. So is it, so let me ask you this also. So it's always um, easy to say that there's a whole lot of economic out of balance here. There are people that are make that are living, you know, at or near the poverty level. And there are a whole bunch of people where living in a whole bunch of more square footage than they need. So could the 1% or 5% even afford to, like, are there enough of those to bear this burden if they wanted to to, you know, make it a progressive um, tax on them? Well, I haven't run those numbers, but I would doubt it. And one thing you certainly would do is you would create an incentive for those people to uh, shelter their income, shelter their wealth, um, either by ceasing to you know, produce things, uh, you know, shutting down companies, uh, ending jobs. Uh, or moving their wealth out of the U.S., moving themselves out of the U.S. I, again, you know, the, even even in today's environment, people move their money to tax havens. Sometimes they move themselves. Um, when Britain really ramped up their social programs and their their income taxes, you know, how many people? How many of the uh, 
the British invasion rock stars, musicians in the 60s and 70s, moved their assets and moved their, some moved their citizenship to places like Ireland just to get away from, uh, uh, from, the, tax, from the taxes of Britain until they finally had to rectify it. You could, there is nothing that says that doesn't happen here. Yeah, but that's, that's the evil rich people. That's so unfair. <laughs> well. But it's the reality, is what you're saying. Like that, whether, whether you like it or not, the reality is that those people have the choice of doing what they want with their money in a legal way. I'm talking to Dr. Robert Grayboys, Senior Research Fellow and Healthcare Scholar at Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where part of his work is to identify ways to make healthcare as innovative in the next 25 years as information technology has been in the past 25. Dr. Grayboys understands that success in the future requires change, adaptation, and action now. He's just one of the thousands of experts featured in our newsletter, Bottom Line Personal, who provide their expert advice to guide readers into action in their own lives. In addition to Bob's wisdom regarding the complicated and critical healthcare system, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life including living a healthy life, traveling safer and cheaper, finding the best insurance, retirement planning, smart strategies, and even travel to little-known destinations. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP that's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. All right, so let's talk about some of the other considerations. You started alluding to the issue of whether doctors will take the, the pay cuts or whether they'll leave the industry. So what are the other considerations? If they go to single payer and they squeeze the doctor, two things are going to happen. One is they need to cut the payments to the doctors, and two is they're going to put tens of millions of more people onto insurance mm -hmm. that current, currently aren't there, which means we have a supply problem of yes. providers. So what, what do people need to understand about that? Doctors may leave the industry, making it even less, less available providers? Correct. So that nothing in this says that at the end of the day, there will be more doctors or more nurses or more hospital beds or more laboratories or more pieces of medical equipment or more drugs or any of that. In fact, everything you know about it suggests there would be fewer. If you're going to, if you're going to slash you know, drug company income, if you're going to slash physician income, if you're going to slash hospital income, um, then you're, you're going to have fewer of those things. You're going to have fewer doctors, fewer hospitals, fewer drugs. Uh, and, and so, yes, you will have a supply problem. You will have more people. First of all, you, you would be adding maybe 30 million new people to the roles. But in addition to that, you would be adding, you would be incentivizing all 325 million of us to seek more care. Once I don't have to think about, do I really need to spend that deductible or the copay? Uh, once that's off the table, and I never have to worry about you know, my treatment costing my pocket, 
I will go more often. And so will all 325 million other Americans. Isn't that part of the argument for it, though, that people are not taking the proper care of themselves when they have to pay exorbitant amounts of money? Well, that... Yes, some people argue that. I don't actually uh, believe it. So the, the most significant experiment in the history of health economics was something called the RAND Health Insurance Experiment, which was conducted in the 70s and 80s. Um, in today's money, it was a multi-billion dollar experiment where they gave different people uh, different sorts of health insurance policies. Some had high deductible, some had no deductible. Uh, they, they gave them a range and they observed them for, I think it was about 12 years. At the end of the experiment, and, and this data is still being gone through 35 years later, um, because it's probably, these, again, the single richest source of data in the history of the economics of healthcare. What they found was that when people had to think about deductibles and copays, they indeed sought less care. They were more frugal with how often they went to the doctor and what they saw. Then they looked at the data and said, well, what well, was the effect on health? And the astounding thing is that there was virtually no change in health among the policies. There were a few, uh, there were a couple of things. Um, eyeglass, uh, eyeglass care, people got a, a, a bit less of that, uh, a little bit less of taking care of blood pressure. And there was a third item and I don't remember what it was, but basically people were frugal. They cut back on their consumption of health care, and they did it in a way that didn't do anything negative to their health. So it seems that in the end, the sickest people get the attention that they need, whether whether they've got it, when they need it, they go get it. Yes. All right. So let's talk about with, let's, so now if um, supply of providers goes down in a single mm -hmm. payer uh, system relative mm -hmm. to the amount of people that that are in the program. What right. happens to wait times? Wait times go wait times go up. My guess is the, um, the visits become shorter. Um, I would I would guess there would be some quality deterioration as well. Uh, you would probably end up with situations such as you see in Canada or Great Britain where the newest and the best drugs are no longer available. Um, you you look you look at what happens in some of these systems. So, for instance, a year a year or so back, some segment of the National Health Service in Britain, they were, which you know, the NHS is running perilously low on on money. They are having to do all sorts of cuts. Among the things. Among the ways that Britain saves money uh, through their single-payer system is they don't do nearly as much in the way of sanitation in hospitals. So their hospital-borne infection rate is outrageously high compared with ours. But also people don't get the latest drugs. And this one segment a year or so back decided uh, we don't have enough money to pay for all the surgeries that people want. So let's make a rule. If you are obese, which means 
and you don't have to be that heavy to be obese technically. Um, you have to have a body mass index of 30 or more. We'll just impose a mandatory one year or more waiting period on non-essential surgery um, uh, for people whose weight is a bit uh, a bit on the high side. I, and, and I'll stress, bouncing off what you just said, people often ask me, you know, what, what's an outstanding country in terms of health care? Uh, I don't know of any. There is no golden standard, gold standard healthcare system in the country. We have our problems, they have their problems. Yeah, for a while, Great Britain had all, all of the care at Great, in Great Britain came through the National Health Service. You only got it if the government wanted you to get it. And finally, during the Thatcher years, there was sufficient uh, insistence and political um, muscle there to change it so that people were allowed to buy policies outside of the NHS to get things they weren't going to get through the NHS. Uh, you, know, you have similar similar problems in Canada. I'll, I'll give a specific example in, in the case of Canada, which people think highly of. So 11 years ago, I was interviewing for a job up in British Columbia, uh, one of the most stunningly beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And it was a very appealing possibility job-wise and uh, in terms of lifestyle and all of that. And I said, okay, I I've always been a skeptic of Canadian healthcare, but let, now I need to really take a good hard look. Is it really something that's uh, you know, less than what I want, or have I just been blowing steam? So I looked into it, and I decided to start by looking at one specific case. So every I don't know, maybe every eight or nine years, my wife will go for a mammogram. There will be some spots on the uh, on the mammogram and the doctor will wrinkle his or her brow and say, I don't think this is anything, but I want you to have a biopsy. Uh, you'll have it tomorrow morning. And if we find anything bad, you know, we can get you in for surgery next week or so. Um, and so my wife has one sleepless night. The next morning she goes in and has a biopsy. And thus far, knock on wood, it has always been, uh, it was just calcification. It was nothing, nothing to worry about. So I said, what if this were to happen in British Columbia, if we lived there? <clears throat> and I went and gathered some statistics and looked into it. And what I found was, if she had the suspicious mammogram and the doctor wrinkled a brow and said, we need to get a biopsy, on average, there would be a one-month wait between the mammogram and the biopsy. So instead of one sleepless night, she would have 30 or 31, depending on what month it was. And, uh, and then, at that point, a month later, if the, if the biopsy showed that there was cancer, the average wait time for surgery would have been around, if I remember correctly, 17 weeks after uh, after the identification. And I looked at this and I said to her, I said, there's no way I'm ever going to put you through this or put me through this. That's a taste of what, what you can expect in this sort of a situation. And that's important, again, as people are considering single-payer sounds great. 
and there's a lot of benefit and as we all pull our hair out on the paperwork and the pricing and the exorbitant pricing they just need to also know the trade-offs of availability of providers the timing of service now when you and I were chatting one other small point I want to talk about that the drug so in the US we are as leading edge as it comes in terms of new drug discoveries new treatment discoveries now you said that in Canada they have a much older drug formulary than the United yes. States that they don't have the same investment um, and progress in new treatment options correct and that's because it costs money and they are on a kind of a fixed provincial budget as to how much they're going to spend so you will likely get older older drugs than you would here but they have but there are drug companies that are developing drugs all the time why wouldn't private enterprise drug companies want to be inventing new drugs and sharing them in Canada as well as the US well, it depends how much they're being paid for it so the price that the government will pay for those drugs in under these systems might be lower than the drug companies yes could yes afford. yes they're paid they're they're compensated less and and part of the way that the government meets its budget is you know part of it is paying less for a particular drug and part of it is saying we're not going to pay for a certain drug but aren't, so, aren't a lot of the drug companies being piggish? I mean, then you hear about the drug companies that are doing crazy inflationary price increases on things, generic drugs, on you know treatments that are hundreds of thousands of dollars. Is, yeah, are those there, reasonable on the other side? Yeah, there are lots of things I could complain about about the drug industry or most other industries. Uh, bottom line is, on a risk-adjusted basis, uh, drug companies profitability is not particularly high. Uh, if you look at the profitability of, of different industries, you know, the financial industry is quite high, drug is much lower. Uh, if you try to squeeze them below that, um, you, will, you will get fewer drugs or, and you will see them moving offshore. Uh, it's that you can always find an outrageous example. So we've had a couple of celebrated news stories in the last couple of years about, you know, a drug that's being sold at some strangely high high price. And the reason it's news is because it's not the general case. It is an enormous, enormous, enormous cost to bring a drug to market and to and to market it. Uh, it takes something like 15 years and a billion and a half dollars worth of tests just to get it to the stage where you are allowed to sell it. And if you're pouring and lots of those investments do not pan out, uh, either the research didn't work, it didn't turn out to be as efficacious or as safe as hoped, or someone else invented something else that supplanted what you were developing. So an awful lot of drugs that are in development never actually make it to market. Uh, that, but the drug company still had to spend the money on those uh, dry wells, uh, to put it in oil terminology. And once you do start marketing it, again, it's, um, it can be a rather iffy, iffy proposition. You're, 
facing risk of competing drugs, of competing procedures, you know, facing facing legal risks along the way. So I think that I've actually spent far more time talking to you than I ever intended. So because there's it's so complicated and there's so much good stuff out there that people need to understand. I think we're going to do another day. We'll talk about the um, the whole system shifts that need to occur, the motivation. I know you were telling me about a phenomenal hospital in India that does heart surgery for far less than it does in the United States, and that's because they're innovative methodologies in terms of their process that how, doesn't how occur. How about a little compromise? Let me tell that story at least, because I would certainly like to leave listeners with the notion of what healthcare can be, as opposed to what we're arguing about in the U.S. Okay. So if I could, if I could tell that, the Narayana Health System in India, 20 hospitals in India and one hospital in the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean, serving mostly American and Western clientele. In the United States, a cardiac bypass operation costs about $100,000 on average or more. Narayana's hospitals in India, the same bypass now costs between $1,000 and $2,000. And it is not because labor costs are less. Uh, yes, yes, the labor costs a bit less over there, but the capital equipment whatever costs more, and they kind of balance out. The reason that it costs so little there is that they have just reinvented what a hospital is and the way a hospital operates. And the astounding thing is they get better results than we get. They get better results than Europe gets. Uh, the survival rates, the success rates for their surgery, doctors there, the average surgeon is performing eight times the number of surgeries over his career as an American doctor does because they are running it according to the most up-to-date modern uh, management principles, uh, commonly known as the Toyota management uh, principles. Uh, they run it like the most modern factory. They get better results. They do it for astonishingly less money. And this is a for-profit hospital system, and actually it's mostly cash basis. Most of the customers are paying cash. But they're getting the bypass for a thousand, a little over a thousand dollars, where we pay a hundred thousand. And I often like to tell my students who are doctors and nurses, I ask them the question, what's better, a world where a bypass is a thousand dollars and you pay for it, or a world where it's a hundred thousand dollars, but the government or someone else is going to pay for it? Uh, I have my opinions on it. It's, it's not a slam dunk answer, but well, and as we said before, a hundred thousand dollars the government pays for it, but that hundred thousand it has to come from someplace. Yes, and and we can go on. I just wrote an article where I listed about twenty of these innovations. Uh, you know, I mentioned I may have mentioned to you that I had a case of atrial fibrillation a couple of years ago. I carry a $99 device on my cell phone that allows me to do my own uh, clinical quality electrocardiogram and get an instantaneous analysis after 30 seconds. And on at least two occasions, it has prevented me from making a $5,000 piece visit to the emergency room. I wouldn't have paid. Someone else would have paid $5,000 had I walked through the door of the emergency room. Instead, by having this little device on my phone, you know, I've saved saved America $10,000. Um, 
and the question, yeah, the question is why things aren't more common. Why don't doctors even know about them? Well, I think we're going to do a story with you. Clearly, I, I just wrote down. I'm from from here. I'm going into a story meeting, and I think we're going to Good. do a story on these innovations because I think people need to know about that. Back to the single payer decision, and again, it's, sure. it's very hard. This the goal of this was not for you or I to take sides. It really was for people to understand before they go into that voting booth in a week and a half that they need to know the complicated issues of it. That it sounds like it's, it sounds great. You don't have paperwork. The, there's no cost to you, but on the trade on the trade off is costs will potentially go up. the The current analysis is that they're assuming costs won't go up, but that there will be efficiencies built into the system. But that may or may not happen. Traditionally, the government has not been effective at it. That doesn't mean it can't be in the future. And then you need to consider. The, t the availability of practitioners, the time waiting for practitioners, the availability of new technologies and drugs. And that's all part of the decision that people need to think. Yes. All right. Dr. Robert Grayboys, Mercatus Institute, thank you so very much for this. Or Mercatus thank Center, sorry, Mercatus Center. Correct. Thank you so very much. Delighted. Glad to be with you.